Well, hey there. It's your pal. It's your amigo. Your compañero, Andrew. One of the hosts of this here show. Raised by Whoops. Fake radio show, that is. I'm coming to you from a piece of patio furniture on what I can only refer to as my deck. Have a deck. I'm telling you about that patio furniture and about my current location for two reasons. One, just to tell you that I'm kind of happy to be here. This is nice for me to be outside. It's the end of a very busy work week. It's Friday uh, evening currently for me. I don't know when you're going to listen to this, but you're definitely not listening to it live. Anyhow, uh, so yeah, I'm telling you about it because I'm I'm just pleased, quite pleased to be where I am right now. I'm facing west. I'm in a little town called San Anselmo, and I'm up on the top of a hill, a hill called Red Hill. And I can see mountains in the distance uh, and in the near distance. If I walk to the other side of my house, I can see the San Pablo Bay, which is part of the San Francisco Bay. It's a very cool place. I feel extremely, extremely fortunate and grateful to be here. So that's one reason I'm telling you about it. The other reason I'm telling you about my location for recording and this deck and this piece of patio furniture, uh, it's by way of apology because the episode that I'm about to share with you is essentially, it's essentially a rerun. There's a podcast previously published on another show called the Monkey Tooth Podcast. The episode is called Curiosity Killed the Cake. And uh, it's a story, it's a real story. Oddly, hardly embellished at all. (laughs) True story of uh, being a I think the word is moron. Yes, that is the correct word, being a moron in Memphis, Tennessee, a long time ago. But the reason I'm apologizing for that rerun of a show, uh, it's that, you know, there's, I've got a lot of stories written. I have a whole book, as a matter of fact, written. And, you know, uh, it's not that I don't have stories to tell you. I got a lot of stories to tell you, but I honestly have not had time to record one. And it sounds real easy to just sit down and read a story that you've written. There's more to it than that. You got to take a little time. You got to edit. You got to make it sound nice. There's a bunch of shit that has to happen. Anyhow, I haven't had time to do that shit as I've been, uh, for one, moving into this new home. It's the first apartment my wife, Tiffany, and I have lived in that uh, required us buying our own furniture in almost a decade. Uh, We just didn't have any. We've either lived in a recreational vehicle, a van, or a furnished apartment for quite some time. So we just don't have any shit. But now we have a lot of shit. A lot of used shit, as a matter of fact. The uh, the couch, we bought an actual couch that came out of a psychiatrist's office, which itself is kind of strange to sit on something that may or may not have been involved in the spilling of one's guts to a person professionally obligated to give a shit. Kind of weird. I don't know if the furniture carries any of that energy, but anyway, I'm rambling. Listen, here's the, here's the story. I am sorry for producing a show right now that is not new, that has been heard by 
maybe at least twos of people in the past. So if you uh, if you're offended by me not putting out the effort to produce a new show or a new new story, I, I do apologize. But I have been quite busy. Built a fence this week. I've been working on all kinds of projects, and I'm a little tired. And this is, I mean, kind of the best I can do. Hope you like it. I hope you're having fun. I keep asking people if they want to share a story, that please do so. But I've got a lot of people saying they will do. Currently, no one who has. If you want to be that first person to actually write a story <laughs> or tell someone that you know that writes stories, like, hey, these idiots will publish your story. Uh, that's it. That's us. We're those idiots. Me and Glenn. He's not so much of an idiot, but he's closely closely associated with one. I'm slurring. I'm that tired. I'm slurring. I apologize. But yes, Glenn is uh, closely associated with a bona fide idiot. And uh, Glenn is the other guy on this show, if you don't know. Where am I going with this? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Send us a story if you want to. We'll read it here, or you can read it, and we'll publish it, and we'll share it. And I promise the intro leading into your episode of the show will not be this long or this rambling. And with that, I'm going to cut it out. I'll give you a little bit of this delightful San Anselmo wind noise coming from the west-northwest. I'll give you a little bit of a musical interlude and then a story called Curiosity Killed the Cake. Until next time. Adios. If you're not a fan of stories about drugs, this is not a good episode of the podcast for you. If stories about drugs are okay with you, but your tolerance for listening to someone describe sex acts as low, feel free to skip this one. I've even heard of people for whom talk of doomed desserts can be particularly unsettling. If you're one of these people, then this is definitely not the show for you. However, if you like stories about sex, drugs, and ill-fated baked goods, then feel free to carry on listening to this special episode of the show. The year was 1999. I was 19. And like many 19-year-olds, I was a moron. Little has changed in the past 22 years. However, I've learned to respect a few things. Way high up on that list of things which I did not fully respect as a young man are the potent, life-changing, and potentially sacred molecules found in a strong dose of LSD. Before the events which I'm about to describe to you took place, I had experienced a handful of mind-altering trips. Of course, I had only other morons near my age for guides. On my first trip, my pals and I were wise enough to surround ourselves with musical instruments, nice lighting, pillows, some mellow pot, and easy access to fresh air. On subsequent trips, I spent time outside and in other pleasant settings. Some trips were very troubling, others, were filled with laughter and insights into the increasingly curious problem of being a human animal. In all, my experiences were relatively safe, 
planned out and not representative of the typical impulsive behavior which typically guides my little ship. But on one hot summer evening, I had plans to go buy some drugs in a parking lot where a hippie jam band was playing. I'd never taken LSD at a concert or in a crowded space of any kind and was curious to have the experience. I lived in Memphis, Tennessee then. The concert was on a little island theater in the Mississippi River, and the parking lot was on a steep bank with a large flat area where the vendors had set up booths. Looking back through a singularly foggy lens of my memory, I gathered those vendors were selling grilled cheese and patchouli sandwiches, maybe wrapped in thin tapestries and served on dirty flip-flops. I could be wrong about that specific element, but practically every other detail I relate to you from this point forward is spot on correcto. I didn't have a girlfriend then, but I did have a friend with whom I occasionally had sex. She and I got along pretty well, having known each other since we were kids, but we never dated. For some reason, when it came to the two of us having sex, I was consistently horrible lover. Seriously, consistently horrible. I called this patient young woman and asked her to come with me that night. I have no idea why she did, but she did. She wasn't into psychedelic drugs, not even a little. To be sure, she wasn't a prude and she'd experienced plenty of other drugs, but psychedelics were not her thing. I told her I was planning on taking a few hits of LSD, going to the parking lot and buying some opium and whatever else sounded interesting. She was cool with it and said she'd drive us back if I couldn't handle it. Before we left the house, I popped three tiny pieces of paper into my mouth, which some crusty wizard had dosed with liquid LSD. I'd tried this batch of LSD previously and knew it to be mellow, visual, and fairly exciting. We hopped into my truck and headed downtown to meet up with my friends by the river. As a moron, of course, I was wearing overalls and an old t-shirt and some sneakers. My friend was wearing something cute and sensible. She, of course, was sober. I, as you heard, was about to take flight on what I knew to be a challenging yet manageable dose of a potent psychedelic substance. At no point on our drive to the parking lot did she happen to notice that I was shifting the gears manually. I hope you're paying attention. That little detail is gonna matter in a moment. We found ourselves a parking spot not too far from all the action. Met up with a few of our friends and made our way into the throng of twirling hippies. Loud music, grilled cheese, sandals, and tie-dyed madness. As it tends to happen with LSD, this sudden burst of super stimulation made my little dose kick in with a warm rush of sensations. Within minutes of entering the crazed mass of people, I was transfixed by a particularly deranged figure making its way towards me. This bizarre figure, silhouetted by the setting sun, was of a tall and thin man with long and greasy hair. vest with no shirt underneath, 
and a pair of bare feet dangling filthily from under an equally mucky pair of Navajo print pants. What set him apart from the others was the way he moved through the crowd. He seemed to be gliding, stumbling, moving forward, stopping suddenly, lurching back a few strokes, then gliding forward again with square hips, but a half sideways twist in his torso. This odd gait contrasted strangely with the hopping and free twirling of his unwashed counterparts. I couldn't take my eyes off him. He noticed. And just like that, he was in my atmosphere. It seemed like he was sprouting from one of those dumbass pockets in the chest piece of my overalls. His flashing eyes met mine and our blinking seemed to sync up perfectly for a few moments. He flashed an amber vial with a glass dropper. Without a word, I knew what he wanted from me. Without a moment's hesitation, I tilted back my head, opened my mouth and watched from the bottoms of my increasingly crazed eyes as the freaky character filled the dropper full of pure liquid LSD and squirted the whole thing down my tongue and into my throat. Maniacal smile broke slightly, and through his clenched teeth he managed to push out the words, Good luck, brother. Good luck, my ass. Goodbye was more like it. I've got no idea how much longer we were in that parking lot. I didn't end up buying shit. At some point, I somehow lost my t-shirt. Eventually, the noise and commotion of the scene was too much. The heat was brutal. The incessant twirling felt sinister. The dreadlocks looked evil. The frying butter in the sandwiches smelled like heavy and poisonous shit. The sound of shoe leather slapping asphalt out of phase and far out of rhythm with the noodling nowhere notes flowing from way too many competing speakers made my skin want to get off and cover someone with better taste and the long-gone sense of why the scene started in the first place piled up on my senses like a car full of drunk clowns spilling out before the thing burst into flames. I couldn't handle another moment of it. We made our way back to my little truck. I was in no shape to drive, so my friend climbed into the driver's seat, inserted the key, and gave it a turn. When nothing happened, I looked down at her hands. I stared at her little feet, then looked into her teeth for some time. I snapped back to attention for a brief moment to hear her telling me in a loud and troubled voice, I I said I can't drive a stick. At first, I couldn't make sense of what she was saying. You can't drive a stick? Well, I'm not sure anyone can. They They don't have any wheels. No, she said. I don't know how to drive a manual transmission. I don't know how to shift the gears. I I don't even know how to start this thing. I felt suddenly deeply confused. I knew exactly how to drive this thing. I was also beginning to wonder if I could ever maybe find someone to teach me to drive a stick. Let's switch seats, I told her to scoot over, and I made the long and arduous journey out of my seat struggling to open the door, unbuckling my seatbelt at the last second, 
finding the floor with not one but both of my feet, failing completely to close the door behind me, then struggling to open the driver's side door. It was climbing in with a sense of accomplishment that you can only get when you're extremely high and conquer some needlessly difficult task, which was the high point of that exercise. Ha! I said triumphantly. I had painstakingly talked her through the process of starting the truck before giving up and asking her to switch with me. When I sat in that seat, the truck was running and I could feel the tiny explosions in the engine through the old cloth seats. I reached for the steering wheel and let my fingers curl around it. Picture now in your own hands, trying to hold onto a wedding ring like it was a tiny steering wheel. Now imagine you place your right hand on the eraser end of a number two pencil and prepare to shift a truck into gear with it. With these images in mind, you may have some idea of, of how the steering wheel and gear shifter felt in my hands. Everything felt tiny, breakable, and wrong. My body and my mind were trying to tell me in no uncertain terms, do not do this, dummy. As I've told you already, I'm a moron. So of course, I did it anyway. In defiance of all instinct and ideas of self-preservation, I pushed my left foot into the tiny pedal and mechanism of the clutch, pushed the upside down pencil of the gear shifter into first gear and lurched into a perfect and awkward stall out. Undeterred and no longer parked in a proper parking space, I started my toy truck again and tried once more to get the thing in gear, up the steep bank of the riverside parking lot and out into the sweltering nighttime streets of Memphis. After a few failed attempts, I managed to get up that hill and approach the exit. I almost couldn't believe it. Driving my little machine was suddenly effortless for about 12 seconds. Then I saw them, a line of police cars and the policemen who drove them there, all parked at horrible angles and flashing every light those goddamn things had at their disposal. My confidence blasted out of my chest like one of those grilled cheese flip-flops from a hippie's ass. I turned awkwardly into the street, then immediately into another parking lot. I took the keys out of the ignition, stepped out of the vehicle, and was convinced the cops had seen me, shirtless, crazy-eyed, and clearly out of my fucking mind. They'd be coming for me. Any moment, I could feel it. The mean arms of an ex-high school linebacker cop tackling my skinny ass into the asphalt in a well-deserved dispensing of justice. A retaliation for my terrible taste and equally dangerous driving was at that very moment heaving its way towards me. I braced myself for impact. Nothing. When I allowed myself to peek, my friend was staring at me with what most people would have seen as a puzzled look. I saw horror in her eyes. 
I told her not to worry. I knew where we could get a cab. We walked to the Greyhound bus station, avoiding the cab stand at the nearby hotel where I had once worked as a valet. Now shirtless, wearing overalls, and sweating like a convict on the run, I couldn't really deal with any familiar faces. In my experience, the cab drivers who work the bus station have incredibly low expectations. Disheveled and crazed appearances are considerably less likely to raise any alarms with that lot. Of course, we got into the one and only cab piloted by a fundamentalist Christian who then spent the entirety of our ride railing against drug addicts and crazies in the city. I nearly tore a hole in the ass of my overalls, clenching my cheeks in fear that he was taking me directly to the cops who'd been parked at the gate in the first parking lot. Here you go, fellas. Give him hell. Mercifully, he took us instead to my apartment. He dropped us off in the back lot and drove off with a handful of cash and a hefty gratuity, originally meant for a drug dealer's wallet, of course. I asked my cute friend if she wanted to come upstairs with me. She looked at me and said, Your eyes look wild. I'll come up. I fumbled with the keys at the door until she took over and got us inside. We made our way to the bedroom. I'll never forget kissing her that night. It was passionate, tender, and filled with a strange power. We stumbled into my bedroom and fell on top of the sheets, sweating in the heat of a southern night. It was incredible. After so many disappointing sessions where I was completely incapable of pleasing her, we were now as one. Kissing, tumbling, nearly electric passion crackling under my fingertips as I felt her body writhing and undulating with ecstasy under my touch. After an eternity of delight and tender lovemaking, we both began to take on serious momentum. Our bodies were tangled in a cosmic scene. Pounding and pulsating in perfect sync, our breathing was a rhythm section. Her sweet voice was like an angel's, singing a song of perfect orgasmic bliss. The squeaking of bed springs played like a deranged horn section. and moaning reached a peak, I felt something like an explosion of pleasure and squeezed my perfect lover into my arms. I was on the verge of tears when, as if a record table had been violently bumped by a twirling hippie, her real voice 
with absolutely zero sing-song or angelic qualities, pierced through my ecstatic bliss. Did you just come? And just like that, reality turned on the lights and grinned at me like a maniac in an armchair. I looked down and realized we were both, although completely tousled, 100% fully dressed. A dark spot was now forming on the pant leg of my overalls. It didn't take her long to collect her shit and go. I was way too high to be embarrassed. I felt amazing. I even giggled a little. See you later, I called off goofily as she left, yet again completely unsatisfied and entirely turned off. I made my way to the kitchen, thinking that I might be hungry. I opened the refrigerator and saw something so beautiful and striking I couldn't tell if it was the LSD or the natural splendor of the object itself. My roommate had celebrated a birthday with her family the night before, and her grandmother made her a small but perfect coconut cake. Only one flawless slice had been cut from it. I then remembered her telling me that I could have a piece if I wanted one. I suddenly wanted one more than anything in the world. Carefully, as if delivering the baby Jesus himself from the spotless womb of his improbably virgin mother, I transferred a practically shimmering cake from the refrigerator to a nearby countertop. I paused for a beat to enjoy the splendor of it. It seemed to be glowing from within and the small pieces of coconut flesh were beginning to move. They writhed like tiny, flat, and perfectly white eels, rolling over and around one another in a seamless dance which covered the whole cake, save for one symmetrically perfect indentation where my roommate's sweet grandmother had sliced out and served a little piece of cake for her special girl. I found that I could make the many and many eels move at faster and slower speeds by just thinking the thoughts. I could make them dance, make them jump. Then I found I could make the figures dissolve. They began to smoke and bubbles of varying sizes began to float off the surface of the cake. I directed my now powerful gaze away from the cake and let it land on the cabinet in front of me. Glass doors with painted wooden frames were now releasing smoky bubbles. The old cracked white paint of the cabinet frame seemed to be dispersing bubble by bubble into the air around me. I followed the bubbles as they rose and noticed that everything was bubbling. I still felt like I had some control over it, adjusting the color and speed of the bubbles as the ceiling, countertops, door frames, and then the trees I could see behind the window of my kitchen began to enjoy their emancipation from solid to smoke. A swaying cacophony of smoke and bubbles began to fill my field of view. I could no longer control it. The totality of existence was a wall of bubbling surfaces, everything unrestrained from its previously rigid molecular structure, liberated by the foaming and the floating of dispersed atoms. I closed my eyes and waited for it all to stop. When I finally opened them again, I was relieved to see chipped white paint, revealing years of tenants getting their wish to paint the kitchen and get rid of that awful color. The simple cups, chipped bowls and plates behind the glass, solid and still, brought me powerful relief.
I then noticed a strange sensation in between my fingertips. I looked down at my hands and began to weep a little. I realized, to my horror, while I was busy dissolving the kitchen with nothing but my imagination, I'd been squeezing the tasty shit out of the most beautiful coconut cake ever made by a grandma's wrinkly hands. A terrible and mangled heap of cake flesh, sugar and coconut shavings was now resting breathlessly on a floral patterned plate. With tears in my eyes, I gathered the cake in my hands, and just as God sculpted Adam from clay, I molded that mangled cake into something not quite resembling the gorgeous little mound of perfection it had once been. I then cleaved the once precious cake in twain, and like Moses parting the Red Sea, I made way for the single Israelite birthday girl's slice to be represented once more in relief. I then closed the back of the cake behind it so that the Egyptians of my clumsiness would not follow any further. Once again, with great deference to the precious gift in my hands, but now with a well-earned sense of shame creeping up my spine, I gathered the plate in my sticky fingers and returned the defiled confection to its proper place in the kitchen. The moment washed over me. I saw the whole night with new eyes. An ancient fool had resurfaced for yet another night of madness. This time, he did his dance in the body of a young moron from Memphis. The clown in the good seat slack-jawed at the ballet, his big head and bony shoulders fucking with the view for a brief spell. Not to worry, I thought to myself. The fool will need to rest. Can this fool teach me a thing or two about patience, being observant, being careful? Probably not. But there is no doubt. Sometimes a little mud in the water makes one appreciate a clearer stream. Without washing my hands or changing from my soiled overalls, I made my way back to my room. I listened to records until the sun came up. Completely failing to fall asleep, I stared at the wild patterns of my sheets, contemplating how it would feel to live as a bee in a hive. And how could I tell if maybe I didn't have nice manners?
Thanks for tuning in to the Raised by Whoops fake radio show. This is Glenn. Both Andrew and I are grateful for your time and attention. If you enjoyed that story, we'd appreciate if you could tell your friends, family, or even a few strangers about the show. Additionally, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. If you have a short story you'd like us to tell, or even some music you'd like to share, you can reach out via the website, raisedbywhoops.com. We're glad to have you with us. Until next time, thanks, and take care.